Chapter Fourteen of the Castaways of the Flag. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. The Castaways of the Flag by Jules Verne. Chapter Fourteen. A Perilous Plight. A few minutes later, the two families, complete this time with Captain Harry Gould and the boatswain, were together in the storehouse in the middle of the island, five hundred paces from the battery knoll over which the flag of New Switzerland floated. Fritz, Frank, and Jenny were clasped to the hearts of Monsieur and Madame Zermatt and covered with kisses. James, Dolly, Susan, and Bob were unable to extricate themselves from the embraces of Mr. and Mrs. Wollston, and much handshaking was exchanged with Captain Gould and the boatswain. Then they had to exchange stories of the fifteen months which had passed since the day when the unicorn disappeared behind the heights of False Hope Point, bearing away Jenny Montrose, Fritz, Frank, and Dolly. But before recalling all these past events, it was necessary to talk of the present. For although they were reunited now, the two families were nonetheless in a serious and perilous position. The savages must ultimately become masters of this island, when the ammunition and provisions were exhausted, unless help came. And whence could Monsieur Zermatt and his people expect help? First of all, Fritz told briefly the story of the flag's castaways. And where are the savages? Fritz asked, as he came to the end of telling how they had seen the savages. At Rock Castle, Monsieur Zermatt replied. Many of them? A hundred at least. They came in fifteen pierogies, probably from the Australian coast. Thank God you were able to escape from them, Jenny exclaimed. Yes, indeed, dear child, Monsieur Zermatt replied. As soon as we saw the canoes making for Deliverance Bay, we took refuge on Shark's Island, thinking that we might be able to defend ourselves here against an attack by them. Papa, said Frank, the savages know now that you are on this island. Yes, they do, Monsieur Zermatt answered. But thank God they have not succeeded in landing her yet, and our old flag is still flying. The following is a very brief summary of what had happened since the time at which the first part of this narrative ended. On the return of the dry season, after the expeditions which resulted in the discovery of the Montrose River, a reconnaissance was carried out as far as the range of mountains, where Mr. Walston, Ernest, and Jack planted the British flag on the summit of Jean Zermatt Peak. That happened some ten or twelve days before the boat arrived on the southern coast of the island, and if the expedition had been carried beyond the range, they might have met Captain Gould at Turtle Bay. But Mr. Walston and the two brothers had not ventured across the desert plateau. The newcomers were told how Jack, carried away by his wild desire to capture a young elephant, had fallen into the midst of savages who made him prisoner. After escaping from them, he had brought back the grave news of their presence on the island. Thoroughly alarmed, the Zermatts and Walstons made plans in anticipation of an attack upon Rock Castle, and maintained a watch day and night. For three months, however, nothing happened. The savages did not appear. It seemed that they had finally left the island. But there was matter of new anxiety in the fact that the unicorn, due to arrive in September or October, made no appearance off New Switzerland. In vain did Jack go many times to the top of Prospect Hill to look out for the return of the corvette. 
On each occasion he had come back to Rock Castle without having seen her. It should be mentioned here that the ship observed by Mr. Walston, Ernest, and Jack, from the summit of Jean Zermatt Peak, was no other than the flag, as could be proved by comparison of dates. Yes, it was the three master which had fallen into the hands of Robert Barrett. After approaching the island, she had sailed to the Pacific Ocean, through the Sunda Seas, never to be heard of again. The last weeks of the year brought them to despair. After the lapse of fifteen months, all abandoned hope of ever seeing the unicorn again. Madame Zermatt, Mrs. Wolston, and Hannah mourned their lost ones. None had courage left for anything. Nothing seemed of any use. It was only after this long delay that they took it for granted that the unicorn had been wrecked, lost with all hands, and that nothing more would ever be heard of her, either in England or in the Promised Land. For if the corvette had accomplished her outward voyage without mishap, after a call at the Cape of Good Hope lasting a few days, she would have reached Portsmouth, her destination, within three months. From there, a few months later, she would have sailed for New Switzerland, and several emigrant ships would have been dispatched soon after her to the English colony. The fact that no ship had visited this portion of the Indian Ocean meant that the unicorn had foundered in the dangerous seas that lie between Australia and Africa before she had reached her first port of call, Cape Town. It meant, too, that the existence of the island was still unknown, and would remain unknown, unless the chances of navigation brought some other ship into these remote seas which, at this period, lay within none of the maritime routes. During the first half of the dry season, neither Monsieur Zermatt nor Mr. Walston thought of leaving Rock Castle. As a rule, they spent the finest part of the year at Falconhurst, reserving a week each for the farms at Woodgrange, Sugarcane Grove, Prospect Hill, and the Hermitage at Everford. On this occasion, they limited themselves to the brief visits necessitated by their duty to the animals. They made no attempt to explore the other portions of the island outside the district of the Promised Land. Jack contented himself with hunting in the immediate neighborhood of Rock Castle, leaving Whirlwind and Storm and Grumbler idle. Various works which Mr. Walston had planned to do, to which his engineering instinct had moved him, were left unattempted. What was the use? In those four little words was summed up a volume of despondency. So when they came to celebrate the festival of Christmas, kept with joy so many years, tears were in the eyes of all, and prayers rose for those who were not with them. Thus the year 1817 opened. In that splendid summer season, nature was more lavish with her gifts than she had ever been before, but her generosity far exceeded the requirements of seven persons. The great house seemed empty, now that those they had expected could be looked for no longer. And yet there came at times faint hopes that everything was not lost irreparably. Could the delay of the unicorn be explained in no other way than by shipwreck with loss of all hands? Perhaps she had prolonged her stay in Europe. Perhaps quite soon they would see her topsails on the horizon and the long pennant streaming from her mainmast. It was in the second week of January of this most gloomy year that Monsieur Zermatt saw a flotilla of pierogies round Cape East and making for Deliverance Bay. Their appearance caused no great surprise, for after Jack had fallen into their hands, the savages could no longer be unaware that the island was inhabited. In less than two hours, the tide would bring the pierogies to the mouth of Jackal River. 
manned by something like a hundred men, for, of course, the whole party that had landed on the island must have joined in this expedition, how would it be possible to offer them serious resistance? Would it be well to take refuge at Falconhurst, Woodgrange, Prospect Hill, Sugar King Grove, or even at the Hermitage at Eberford? Would they be any safer there? As soon as they had set foot on this rich domain of the Promised Land, the invaders would be sure to go all over it. Ought they to seek a more secret shelter in the unknown regions of the island, and would there be any certainty that they would not be discovered even there? Then Mr. Walston suggested that they should abandon Rock Castle in favor of Shark's Island. If they put off in the longboat behind the point of Deliverance Bay, and went along the Falconhurst shore, they might perhaps be able to get to the island before the pierogies arrived. There, at any rate, under the protection of the two cannon in the battery, they might defend themselves if the natives attempted to set foot on the island. Besides, if there were not time to take over the stores and provisions needed for a long stay, the storehouse had beds and could accommodate the two families. The boat could be laden with articles of prime necessity. And further, as has been related before, Shark's Island had been planted with mangroves, palms, and other trees and was used as a park for a herd of antelopes, while the limpid stream assured an abundant supply of water, even during the very hottest season. There would thus be nothing to fear on the score of food for several months. Whether or not the two four-pounder carronades would be sufficient to repulse the flotilla if it made an attack in full force upon Shark's Island, nobody could say. The natives, of course, could have no knowledge of the power of these arms, whose reports would spread panic among them, not to mention the bullets and balls which the two guns and the carbines would rain upon them. But if even half of them succeeded in landing on the island, there would be little hope. There was not a moment to lose. Jack and Ernest brought round the boat to the mouth of Jackal River. Boxes of preserves, cassava, rice, and flour, and also arms and ammunition were taken down to it. Then Monsieur and Madame Zermatt, Mr. and Mrs. Walston, Ernest, and Hannah got into it, while Jack took his seat in his canoe, which would enable him, if need arose, to establish communication between the island and the shore. The animals, except the two dogs, had to be left at Rock Castle. The jackal, ostrich, and the onager were set at liberty. They would be able to find their own food. The boat left the mouth of the river just as the pierogies came into sight off Whale Island. But it ran no risk of being seen in this portion of sea lying between Rock Castle and Shark's Island. Mr. Walston and Ernest rode while Monsieur Zermatt steered in such a way as to profit by certain backwaters, which enabled them to make headway against the rising tide without excessive exertion. Nevertheless, for a mile, they had to struggle hard not to be carried back toward Deliverance Bay, and it was three-quarters of an hour before the boat slipped in among the rocks and anchored at the foot of the battery knoll. They at once unloaded the chests, arms, and various articles brought from Rock Castle, which they deposited in the storehouse. Mr. Walston and Jack went to the battery, and took up their posts there to keep watch over the approaches to the island. The flag flying from the signal mast was immediately pulled down. Nevertheless, it was to be feared that the savages had seen it, since their canoes were not more than a mile away. Thus they had to remain on the defensive in anticipation of an immediate attack. The attack did not take place. When the pierogies were off the island, 
They turned southwards, and the current took them in towards the mouth of Jackal River. After the savages had landed, the canoes were taken into shelter in the little creek where the Panas lay at her moorings. This was the position of affairs. For a fortnight the savages had been in possession of Rock Castle, and it did not appear that they had sacked the house. It was different at Falconhurst, and from the top of the knoll Monsieur Zermatt had seen them chasing the animals after they had wrought havoc in the rooms and storehouses. But there was soon no doubt that the band had discovered that Charles Island was serving as a refuge for the inhabitants of the island. On several occasions half a dozen of the canoes came across to Leverance Bay and made towards the island. Several shots sent among them by Ernest and Jack sank one or two and put the others to flight. But from that moment it was necessary to watch day and night. A night attack would be very difficult to repulse. Monsieur Zermatt hoisted the flag at the top of the hill again, for the improbable might happen, and a ship might come within sight of New Switzerland. End of chapter 14 Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona